0: Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, the preacher preaches There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. To go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun. All the days of his life which God gives him for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. In this chapter, remember what we've already looked at. The preacher makes observations about Human words in verses 1 through 7. Human wickedness in verses 8 through 12. Human wretchedness in verses 13 through 17. And human wisdom in verses 18 through 20. As we've walked with the preacher through from the temple to the marketplace, the preacher now finds himself In that position where life begins and where life ends. Warren Wearsby ends this section of the scripture with a quote that I couldn't resist. He writes, quote, if we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we accept his gifts, but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we're guilty of indulgence. But if we yield to his will and use what he gives for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. That's the takeaway right from the start. What a gem. The old Japanese proverb that I didn't remember last week goes like this. Getting money is like digging with a needle. Spending it is like water soaking into sand. Everybody's going. It's hard to make and it's easy to lose. It seems to come in grudgingly and it seems to go out pretty plentifully. Solomon turns his attention to what he calls two grievous evils, the sudden loss of wealth in verses 13 through 15, and then the sudden loss of life in verses 16 through 17. And remember, the preacher is evaluating the reality that some people can accumulate wealth and then suddenly lose everything and be left without the ability to support their family fortunes come fortunes go money comes in money goes out then solomon turns his attention to the moment that we begin our journey called life and how we end our journey and it's something that you've always said throughout your life naked i came into the world naked i'm going to leave and few people realize that many of the things that we say almost automatically come from the Bible. We came into this world with nothing in terms of material possessions, and we will leave this world the same way we left it. I heard the story of three men who died suddenly and unexpectedly, and they found themselves in eternity's waiting room and a kind angel Ask each man, what kinds of things would you like to hear at your funeral? And the first man said, I'd like to hear them say he was a kind man. He was a good man. He was a good physician. He was a great doctor with gifts to heal the sick. And the second man said, I hope they say he was a fair man. He was a just man willing to protect be innocent and defend the just. And the third man said, here's what I hope they say. Look, he's moving. He didn't really die. Look, he's alive. But Solomon knows. He knows the truth. That just as the Bible has said it is appointed once for a human being to die and then the judgment. Now, I want you as again, as we as we think about this passage, I want you to remember the great big theme of the book of Ecclesiastes and the great big theme is, is there significance? Is there a meaningful life apart from God? And remember, that's what the preacher, that's what King Solomon keeps asking as he continues his investigation Is life meaningful? Is it significant? He's asked the question and he's exploring the portion whether or not money and the accumulation of wealth can provide the satisfying solution to the pangs of meaning and purpose and security. And the wealthiest man perhaps who ever lived. Determined. The more we have, the more we want in verse 10. The more we have, the more we spend in verse 11. The more we have, the more we worry in verse 12. And now the preacher points out the more we have, the more we lose in verses 13 through 14. The more we have, the more we leave behind in verses 14 through 17. Look again in verses 13 and 14. The more we have, the more we lose. Verse 13, there is a severe evil, which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. The expression a severe evil is also translated a grievous Wrong. The idea is that the riches kept are really hoarded. There's a severe evil or a grievous evil, which I have seen under the sun. Now, remember when Solomon uses that expression under the sun, he is speaking of the perspective of man's vision, of man's way of looking at things. He's using the expression in the sense of. When you look at it from this perspective, rich is kept for the owner to their hurt, in other words, hoarded to the owner's detriment. And the implication is that the accumulation of wealth in the end serves no real good many years ago. And this is at a time when money was actually worth something significant. Uh, uh, This is at a time when. um, Oh, you know, money was made of gold and silver, and I read a a story from an AP news outlet from Hutchinson, Kansas. There was this ragged peddler who told a friend he didn't have five dollars to pay a debt, and the very next day they found him dead in his apartment And in the filthy apartment, they found $61,000 in bonds and currency. And the man's name was Raymond Mishler. He was 48, and he died of malnutrition. Police and investigators confirmed that more money was found in an old store building that belonged to Mr. Mishler. Detective Ed May, who went on to investigate, who was one of the investigators who found his body, noticed a piece of paper sticking in a door sill. It was a $1,000 government bond. They found more bonds, and then they found more currency. Then they found large bills, and then they found tens of thousands of dollars in postage stamps. Then they found three bank books, and and the minimum deposit in each of the bank books was $9,000. How does that happen? How do you accumulate wealth and then you don't spend it? The more we have, the more we leave behind. And so in verse 14, he, he writes and he says, But those riches perish. Through misfortune, when he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. There's a journey again that Solomon is taking, that the preacher is making when he says, but those riches perish through misfortune. The word misfortune is very, very interesting because it doesn't necessarily, I think, lead us or or, or bring about the right way of thinking about the passage. It's the same word. That's used to describe work or labor or burden in other passages in chapter one, verse 13 in chapter three, verse 10 and chapter eight, verse 16. The point of the passage seems to be this. Those riches perish through misfortune. The idea is a financial reversal that's so severe. And we're not told about what creates the financial reversal, but whatever this financial reversal is, however he spent his life accumulating things, accumulating wealth, whatever happens, it brings it to the point where it's so severe that nothing's left to his children or to his son. The riches are suddenly gone. We're not told if it's because of a physical or a financial catastrophe. We're not told if he gambled it away. We're not told if it's a misguided or a foolish venture. But the riches disappear through misfortune. And the person becomes what my dad used to call flat broke. And my father experienced exactly that. My father didn't believe in banks, and my father didn't believe in debt, and my father believed in working and working and putting stuff away and putting them in financial instruments or putting them in real estate or putting them in in rental properties. And in 2005, a hurricane hit New Orleans, Louisiana, called Hurricane Katrina. And because my father didn't put money in a bank and because he bought gold and silver and because he bought income property, the hurricane came and all of the things that he made investments in literally went underwater. And how is it possible in just a single moment things changed so dramatically? And what made matters worse, no flood insurance. They're gone, completely gone, wiped out at a moment's notice. And in verse 15, the preacher preaches as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. I want you to read that verse very carefully. Read it again. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. The person takes nothing that can be carried In his hand. Why am I even pointing that out? This is nothing tangible. This is nothing material. This is nothing physical. I've done lots and lots of funerals over the last 30 years. And in the lots and lots of funerals that I've ever seen, every once in a while, I'll do a funeral where a person will be wearing a piece of jewelry or they might be wearing a ring or they, they might might have something on their person. There's some memento or there's some keepsake. But I've never seen anyone buried with anything that could amount to something that could be described as valuable. Clearly, the person takes nothing physical, tangible, concrete. You've all grown up in a world where you've heard people say over and over again, you can't take it. You can't take it with you. And in a sense, that's true. Nothing tangible, nothing material, nothing physical. But clearly, people do take something with them. When you die, you take your soul, you take your character, you take your conscience. But do you know what your soul and your character and your conscience all have in common? It is not physical. It's immaterial. It's not permanent. It's temporal. Have you ever stopped to just think for even a moment? And ask yourself the question, what in the world am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I living for? What am I working for? What am I trying to accumulate? What am I trying to accomplish? How much labor? How much sweat equity? How much do I need to to have? How much do I need to accumulate? You see, part of the point that the richest man who has ever lived is making is that we never possess anything permanently. We are at best custodians, and at worst, we're poor stewards. Possessions typically fall into two categories, consumable, temporal, or those things that will outlast you. And everything that you have that will outlast you will one day belong to somebody else. Everything that you have that can't be eaten or can't be taken will belong to someone else. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 20, Jesus said, but lay up for yourself yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there also your heart will be you know it's interesting how in the world do you lay up treasure in heaven and since you can't take it with you Whatever it is that you take with you, it has to be not visible, but invisible, not temporal, but eternal, not worthless, but valuable. Have it, has it ever stopped to occur to you that the only thing that really has eternal value is the soul of each and every person that you come in contact with? And, you know, i told you on more than one occasion that each and every person that you meet and each and every time you meet them, you are doing one of two things. You are preparing them for heaven or you are delaying them from heaven. You are preparing them for heaven or you are delaying them for heaven. In Mark chapter 8 verse 36, Jesus said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Now I want you to think about that for just a moment because what Jesus was basically contrasting and comparing was a world that is physical and visible and tangible and a world that is invisible. And intangible. But Jesus makes it abundantly, abundantly clear that a human being's soul is real, and that a human being's soul is valuable, and that a human being's soul is going to live somewhere forever. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 16, it says, And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who is labored for the wind? In the original language, the word just is at the very beginning of the sentence, and it's emphatic. It might be translated quite exactly as. We could, we could read this, and this also is a severe evil Quite exactly as he came, he shall go quite exactly in the sense of you come through no cause of your own. Not a single person in this room or within the sound of my voice had a checklist in heaven going Okay, this is who I want for my mother, and this is who I want for my father, and this is where I want to be born, and this is what I want to be born to, and these are the people that I want to have in my life. You, you've, you've already prayed that prayer, haven't you? You've already said, God, why did you stick me with the people you stuck me with? Why couldn't I have been placed under different circumstances? The capital contained in a newborn hand is the capital retained in the dead man's hand. We take exactly what we came with. We take exactly what we came with. And here's the point of the passage. Then how in the world are we to explain The accumulation. His point is, it would appear that accumulation becomes futile. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah spoke words of judgment against a king named Jehoiakim. And the king of Judah, the greatest insult that Jeremiah spoke concerned his burial, he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 22, they will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister, they will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. The worst thing that could happen in the Jewish culture was not to have a proper burial. The worst thing that could happen in the Jewish culture was that when you died, no one would miss you. The worst thing that could happen in the Jewish culture is the idea that your life left nothing, meant nothing, provided nothing and it sounds pretty bleak unless you continue to read remember in verse 14 i have seen and if you go all the way back to ecclesiastes chapter 1 And just turn in your Bible and remember how he begins the inquiry and the investigation in chapter 1 verse 14. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun that is from man's perspective and with a human perspective and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Remember that means empty. It means meaningless. It means valueless. And it's one thing. It's one thing to see under the sun the meaninglessness and the valuelessness and the grasping for the wind. But now there's something there's an interesting transition that is taking taking place in verse 16. And I want to draw it to your attention. It says, and what profit has he who has labored for the wind? It's one thing to just have the wind. In other words, you have nothing. Imagine someone says, hey, look, here's what I have. I have unlimited nothing for you. Take it. And you go, "Okay." And if I have unlimited nothing available for you and you take it, that's pretty foolish, isn't it? But imagine I say, hey, I want you to work for me. And when the job's done, I'm going to give you a pile of nothing. See, that's the the transition that's taking place. It's one thing to be given nothing, and it's another thing to actually work for nothing. That's the point. People are willing to literally spend their life and occupy their heart in things that simply don't matter. And so in verse 17, the preacher says, All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Now, here's the idea. What was this man able to purchase with all of the things that he accumulated? He was able to purchase darkness and sorrow and sickness and anger. Now, one of two things is taking place in this verse. He's speaking metaphorically. In other words, he's describing the person who has lived their life in the meaningless pursuit of things that don't matter. And these become the mental and emotional and spiritual consequences he eats in the darkness. Does that mean the darkness of being absent from the light or not having the presence of God? That might be it. The the absence of light is also a symbol of sorrow. But here's the idea preoccupation with wealth brought about sorrow and sickness and which speaks of a physical strain. So here, the idea is that the care and the frustration of living day after day and week after week and month after month was tearing this person up inside. Today, I was listening to the radio. And they were there was a. Discussion about political parties and they began to characterize each other as being in the dark, always sick, always sorrowful, always angry. And I thought, this is like what I'm reading in the Bible. How is it possible to be caring about all of these things and the net result is darkness and sorrow and sickness and anger. And by the way, anger or wrath at the end of verse 17, where it says anger or wrath, it really is speaking of the times when the wealthy person is enraged because their financial plans have been thwarted or blocked. Have you ever seen someone who financially wanted to accomplish a goal and it was like life itself conspired against them? And they began to get angry because of the circumstances. The idea also is when a person loses everything, they don't necessarily abandon the belief that true contentment lies in the accumulation of possession or wealth. Now, again, think about this for a moment. The person who has a great deal and then the person who has nothing. They go from a great deal to nothing, and when you go from a great deal to nothing, does that all of a sudden convince the person of the value of God, of Jesus, of spiritual things, or are there people who have experienced financial reversals who still hold on to the idea that if they have enough money and enough financial security that that will bring meaning and significance and importance and value to their life. I'm going to suggest something to you that the preacher is describing someone who is still empty, who is still frustrated Who is still in the dark. Who is still separated from God. Whether there's the presence of money or the absence of money. Among alcoholics and alcoholism, there is a, a, a statement that's made a lot called a dry drunk. It's a person who has stopped drinking, but they still have all of the characteristics of a person who drinks. There's character kinds of things that continue to take place. Uh, I've seen circumstances where children who have been adopted from Eastern European countries or, or Russia or from from financial circumstances of profound poverty in the Philippines and they come here to America and they're sitting at the Thanksgiving table and they begin to fill their pockets with with rolls or with pieces of meat and you sit there and you, and you think, sweetie, you don't need to do that. You don't need to... There's plenty and there's, there'll be, there's plenty now and there's plenty for later. And guess what? You're going to wake up in the morning and the food's still going to be here. Now they may see the food and they may taste the food and they may experience the reality that the food is in the refrigerator, but there's something broken inside of them that causes them not to believe that the food will be there when they wake up in the morning. The preacher's describing a miser. In Graham, North Carolina, the justice of the peace, Charles W. Jones, performed a wedding ceremony. And when the ceremony was over, the bridegroom asked the judge, hey, what's the fee? And the justice of the peace said, hey, give me whatever you think it's worth. And the bridegroom dug into his pocket and he pulled out a quarter and he handed it to the justice of the peace. And the justice of the peace took it in his hand and he looked at it and he blinked couple of times put it in his pocket and then he gave the man 15 cents in change we laugh because even when he gave a quarter he was probably wishing that he didn't even have to give the change that expression all his days he eats in darkness It might be a metaphor. It might be a figure of speech. But I suspect it's the person, whether they have wealth or whether they don't have wealth, they're simply convinced that the wealth should be the satisfying solution to the problem of their life. I read the story of the first modern billionaire. His name was John D. Rockefeller. And at the height of his earnings, he generated a million dollars a week. You may not know this, but in modern times, John D. Rockefeller was the exclusive occupant of the billionaire club. At age 53, he was only able to drink milk and eat crackers. You know why? Because his stomach was so upset. His health was so bad. He was in a constant state of turmoil. And then something happened. He began to give the money away. And the more he gave it away, the more radically his health improved. And by the way, John D. Rockefeller celebrated his 98th birthday. This is something that has been in every culture and in every society. Many of you are familiar with Aesop's fables. Remember Aesop? You may not know about Aesop, but he was a slave who lived some 2,000 years ago, and he was famous for telling stories. And maybe as a young child, you had some of these stories read to you, like me. He tells the story of a miser about a man to make sure that his property would always remain safe and protected he sold everything that he had and he converted it into one great lump of gold which he hid in a hole in the ground and since he went there continually to visit it and inspect it one of the workers became curious and suspected that his master had hidden a treasure and when the miser's back was turned you know the story the worker went into the spot he stole the gold soon thereafter After the miser returned, he found the hole empty and he began to weep and he began to tear out his hair. And the neighbor who witnessed the whole thing told him, don't fret any longer. Just take a great big stone the same size as your piece of gold and place it in the hole. Then imagine that it's your lump of gold. And since you never meant to use it, the stone will be just as good as the gold. See, we laugh. But something doesn't become valuable or real or tangible or beneficial until it's put back into circulation. And so the preacher, he's going to conclude the section with what do you know about God, all of a sudden the shift in perspective takes place in verse 18, where it says, here is what I have seen <clears throat> in the old King James. It says, behold, and I actually like it better because it dramatically imp- it it. it, it Gives us the picture of the dramatic change that's about to take place. Behold, here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. Now, the reason why I bring this up is in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, how many times is God mentioned? Zero. Now, the preacher says, Let's look at this again. Let's examine our dilemma once more. Let's take another look. Let's gain a fresh perspective. Let's bring the Lord into our perspective. Let's look at this through the lens of God's heart and God's character and God's perspective. Labor is not bad in and of itself. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and to drink and, and underline that and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life. You need to understand something. In this particular passage, he concedes and admits that labor isn't bad in and of itself. Is it wrong for human beings to work? No, God created human beings in such a way that when he created us, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave us jobs to do. Work is God, God's provision. And we're given a provision, even if it's for a brief period of time. And by the way, eating and drinking isn't always a selfish or an indulgent thing to do. As a matter of fact, sometimes eating and drinking have way more to do with companionship and fellowship and joy and satisfaction. A careful reading of the Bible, depending on where the the, the statements appear and the perspective that it appears in, sometimes eating and drinking can be seen as carnal and selfish. But here, the point that the author is making is that there is a God-given Opportunity and responsibility to enjoy companionship and fellowship and satisfaction. Eating and drinking, depending on the context, can mean a happy and a fulfilled life. And so here he's bringing it in and he's basically saying there is an opportunity, a righteous opportunity and a privilege for you to enjoy companionship, fellowship and satisfaction. I'm going to ask you a question. Particularly because Thanksgiving's tomorrow. Is it better to eat alone or to eat with someone? What do you think? How many of you vote for alone? Got one taker. How many of you think with someone? Lots of takers. The miser says, it all depends on who's paying the bill. Alone, I mean, if I have to pay for it, I guess it's better that I eat alone. But if I have to pay the bill. But you see, the man who loves his family. And the man who loves his friends. The man who loves his family and loves his friends, the woman who loves her family and loves her friends, they happily pay the bill because they understand something. They understand that the ability to earn money and the ability to generate wealth is a gift from God. That's God's gift. It's not wrong, but good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. What a great scripture to share at Thanksgiving. You see, the problem becomes for the person who goes, it's Thanksgiving Day. I think this is the day that I've set aside to to um, fast and to cover myself in ashes. No, there's a time to fast. But there's a time to celebrate. There's a time to go without. But there's also a time to demonstrate graciously your love and your affection to your family and your friends. Pay close attention to that word. Enjoy. We are to enjoy our lives. We are to enjoy the special gifts and privileges that God has given to us. And when we enjoy, we don't do it at the neglect of others. Now, clearly, Solomon isn't advocating some vow of poverty or special value in in the simple life, although simplicity and poverty have certain kinds of benefits Clearly, what this particular person is saying, God is the source of the gift. But here's the other thing. Not only does God give you the ability to make money and generate wealth, he gives you the ability, the privilege, if you will, to enjoy what God has given to you. Have you ever met someone who quite simply just didn't simply they did not enjoy what God had given to them? And they lived a life of misery and isolation and detachment in verse 19 it says as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth And given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labors. This is the gift of God. I suspect riches and wealth here mean tangible, physical, secular wealth. Clearly, wealth can lead to misery, but wealth can also accomplish great things for God and God's kingdom. It can become misery if you depend upon it and it can become a great benefit if you determine in your heart that you're going to trust God and depend upon God and depend upon the things of God and you're going to love his appearing in his kingdom, the preacher holds out the possibility of God-given wealth and the God-given ability to enjoy the wealth. And there's a sense of comfort in knowing Hey, God gives the ability to generate wealth. It's God who gives the ability to enjoy life. God's ability to generate wealth and enjoy life is not wicked and it's not evil. In chapter 2, verse 26, the preacher wrote, quote, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. By the way, happiness is at least in one sense. A gift from God. Just like any other gift, the gift and the power to generate riches and wealth is given to some. And apparently withheld from others. I know some of you thinking, how come I haven't been given this particular gift? I got to tell you something. I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know the answer to this question. Does God give gifts to men and women? What do you think the answer is? Yes. Does every good and perfect gift come from God in whom there is no shadow or turning? Yeah. If God is the source of every good and perfect gift and a person has been given the gift to generate riches and wealth. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. And in verse 20, it says, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Now, look at carefully the ability to enjoy the things that money can buy or the privileges that wealth generates. Is also a gift from God. The Christian life. The God-centered life, the Christ-centered life, need not be a life of drudgery. But it can be a life of joy and a life of adventure. I was particularly struck again by the passage in verse 20, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. I've got to tell you something the wealthiest people in the world generally are wealthy because they found something that they love to do and they found somebody stupid enough to pay them an enormous amount of money to do what they love to do. How do you think that LeBron James gets paid so much money? How's that Tiger Woods get, gets play, paid so much money for playing a game? When you loved something, And you become excellent at it. Singing. Will people pay to hear you sing? Telling stories. Will people pay to read what you write? Will people pay to eat what you cook? Will people pay for what you love to do? I've told you guys the story of my English teacher, Mr. Brimhall, who said, Mr. Tracy, will you please shut up? Do you think people will pay to hear you speak? And I went, Are there jobs like that? <laughs> Let me ask you something. What is the joy of your heart? What is it that you would do for free? And that you wish you could find someone stupid enough to pay you to do it. What is your passion? What is your joy? I read the most remarkable story this week. Have you ever heard the name Charles Schwab? Charles Schwab... Was the first man, at least that I am aware of, in American history who was offered a job at one point two million dollars and he took the check and he tore it up. He says, here's what I want you to pay me. Nothing. When he was asked. Why? Why won't you take this salary? He said, I am wealthy beyond imagination. My wife is wealthy in her own right. We have no kids to leave our wealth to. I do this because I love it. I love to work and I love to help and I love to minister and I love to provide. And guess what? He found his passion and it created a mechanism of wealth that was unbelievable there is a business that vexes and frustrates and there is a business that brings joy each and every one of you wake up each and every morning and you hate what you're doing or you love what you're doing or you may hate parts of what you're doing you love part of what you're doing. And the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune have begun to accost your heart, and the thing that you, the, the whole reason why you decided to do what you did, did is no longer fun. It's, it's a big, fat, stinking trial. But the preacher understands something we've been given a life. And we've been given a life of faith and joy. And we've been given a passion. And each and every one of us have an obligation, a duty, if you will, to discover what it is that God has gifted you to do. And find a way to manifest that gift. When the Lord empowers you, when the Lord gifts you, with, when the Lord empowers you and gifts you, he also gives you the ability to enjoy that gift. We are given appetites that can be satisfied in a God-given fashion and we're given minds to appreciate beauty and majesty. And yes, indeed, it is a possible for appetites to be twisted and corrupted and perverted. We're not given anything, really to enjoy apart from the Lord. This is why Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, whatever you do, whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do it all to the glory of God. And so when you take that extra helping of yams and turkey tomorrow, when that pecan pie is just staring you in the face, When those candied yams are just impossible to resist. Put them on your plate. Put them on your plate and say, Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for grace and mercy and love. For the ability to enjoy friendship and companionship and relationship with my family and friends. We're to possess our possessions and none of them are to possess us. You know, clearly John D. Rockefeller woke up one fine morning and he decided that money wasn't evil. It may be a root of every kind of evil, but money was never meant to give us forgiveness from sin. Reconciliation to the father. It was never to provide a false sense of dependence or independence, if you will, from God. Can we find heaven on earth? In bits and pieces. When we love him and we depend upon him. The person who first seeks the kingdom of God and his righteousness isn't discouraged when they discover that wealth isn't the ultimate source of happiness. That person has already found the source of deep satisfaction and abiding joy in the Lord Jesus. So what do we learn from the preacher? Remember, the more we gain, the more we want in verse 10. The more we have, the more we spend in verse 11. Additional wealth brings additional worry in verse 12. Wealth can appear. And it can Disappear and vanish into thin air in verses 13 through 14. Do I dare state the obvious? Doesn't it make more sense to trust in the Lord than to trust in riches? Really, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world And lose his soul. By the way, what is sufficient to purchase your soul? How much wealth? How much influence do you have to accumulate before you can present it to God and say. I've gotten everything that I could possibly get. And the Lord God says, there's only one thing that I want from you. Repentance. Regret. For your sin, faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to accept what I believe to be the satisfying solution to the problem of the emptiness inside of your heart. I want you to love my son. I want you to honor his sacrifice. I want you to rejoice in his resurrection. I want you to be convinced that the plan of salvation has been accomplished for you so that the thing that becomes the most important thing for you to have for throughout all eternity is intact. And that's friendship and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Riches can be enjoyed But it is possible that some riches will never be enjoyed. Measure your life, not by what you leave, but by what you take with you. It's discovered in your soul, in your conscience, in your character, and the people, the people, the people who you've come to know and love who wind up in heaven with you. Remember, remember, every single person you meet, you're preparing them for heaven or you're delaying their departure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing chapter. The more we gain, the more we want, the more we have, the more we spend, the more wealth brings worry. And things can appear and disappear and vanish into thin air. Lord, we pray that you would give us your perspective on things. That, Lord, we would see that wealth is the gift from God. The ability to generate wealth and generate riches comes from you. And, Lord, there's something else that's powerful and exciting. The ability to enjoy wealth and riches is a gift from you. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gifts that you've given to us. But most importantly, the best gift, the Lord Jesus. And so again, Father, we pray that our hearts would be filled with joy and gratitude as we anticipate the marvelous, the marvelous provision that you've made for each and every one of us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.